When Barbara saw the uh, title for my sermon, she gently reminded me that it should be between 10 and 15 minutes. After moments, she asked how I had come up with the topic. I I mentally hit the rewind button. I thought about the words of a dying friend, a banner I had recently seen. I remembered a client's observation about guns and imagination. I recalled recently reading two relevant Bible passages, one in Ephesians, one in Isaiah. I reflected on the particular context in which I would be speaking, that is, the day of the interfaith fundraiser, on the day after our big fundraiser, and, of course, in the context of the upcoming presidential election. In addition, I couldn't shake the old adage, that is, you teach or perhaps preach best what you most need to learn. Then I replied to her about how I chose my topic. I said, why, it's the idea of the monkey rope from Monkey Dick, from Moby Dick, of course, which seemed to make perfectly good sense to Barbara, or she nodded anyway. I'll explain my thought process and undoubtedly my sermon topic and reason for it will become absolutely clear to y'all as well. The obvious one first, the monkey rope from Moby Dick. The monkey rope is attached to both Queequeg, the harpooner, who is on the back of the dead whale butchering the carcass, and Ishmael, his bowsman, on the deck above. If Queequeg falls off to drown or is crushed between the carcass and the ship, Ishmael is pulled by the monkey rope to his death. Ishmael thinks, so strongly and metaphysically did I conceive of my situation then that while earnestly watching his motions, I seemed distinctly to perceive that my own individuality was now merged in a joint stock company of two, that my free will had received a mortal wound, and that another's mistake or misfortune might plunge innocent me into unmerited disaster and death. And yet still further pondering, while I jerked him now and then from between the whale and the ship, which was threatening to jam him, Still further pondering, I say, I saw that this situation of mine was the precise situation of every mortal that breathes. The idea of being inextricably tied to one another seems particularly relevant in light of the upcoming election, because regardless of the outcome, a large percentage of Americans will find themselves in a situation in which they most likely will feel frustrated, angry, alienated, even cheated. And although I wouldn't predict a civil war, I can certainly imagine an uncivil, uneasy, cold peace. There seems a natural transition from the idea of the monkey rope to Martin Luther King's inescapable network or web of mutuality. His vision was to turn this web into the beloved community, 
which is the ultimate goal of nonviolent activism for peace and justice, a global community of caring where poverty, hunger, and injustice are no more. Now, one of Dr. King's core beliefs was that hating one's opponents is not only immoral, but bad strategy that merely perpetuates the cycle of revenge and retaliation. And while it would be hard to digest the side I champion losing, it could. And I imagine the proponents of the other side would have the same, would probably have the same indigestion problems. So, win or lose, I believe it's incumbent to reflect upon how our faith tradition, how liberal religion can speak to the grave political situation our country appears to be trapped in. It's as though we have become a house divided in culture, ideology, values, income, wealth. Seemingly so much that we're losing any sense of community, the ideas of shared sacrifice, shared burdens, shared benefits, common good, are heading toward extinction. Even facts and sources of authority are partisan. Spin can make up seem down, black seem white, good seem bad. And a relentless diet of this can cause less and less interest in finding ways to live together. That is, to share the inescapable web harmoniously. So, are we hostage or healer in the web of mutuality? Like most religious liberals, we Unitarian Universalists, and I'm going to speak for us, imagine ourselves to be decent, just people. We can imagine that those on the other side maybe the religious right, the Tea Partiers, whoever, want to force their moral code on everyone. We believe in tolerance, free choice, equality, and how in the world can that be scary to anybody? So we decide they've been duped by their unscrupulous leaders. But we do well to understand the basis of their fears and anger because to dismiss or be derisive not only demeans our principles, it perpetuates the division. To discount the feelings or beliefs of the other side places our integrity and values at risk. Liberal religious traditions recognize that understanding is a source of strength. It's not a capitulation. It's not a sign of weakness. We believe we can learn and accept from other belief systems without losing our identity or having to reignite the Crusades. Will we incarnate our values of tolerance, empathy, wisdom, respect, compassion, or just lug them around waiting until things change and the other side 
finally comes to their senses or gets it. Hostage or healer, like the umpire when questioned, was it a ball or a strike, responded, it's nothing till I call it. And so in large, member, in large measure, we get to call it. We are hostage if we are simply, if we simply oppose our anger to the other side's anger. We are hostage if we are intolerant of the other side's seeming intolerance. Outbreaks of bigotry present an opportunity, the opportunity, the opportunity to express publicly tolerance, compassion, modeling reasonable, measured behavior. John Murray, universalist pioneer, said, give them not hell, but hope and courage. Justice is no accident. Now for the biblical references, I had read an article and I was moved by one of the uh, passages, so I, I looked it up. And in Ephesians 4, the writer speaks to the church and says, Be angry, but do not sin. Both a permission and an admonition. Our anger can become an ally for justice, for right relationship, if used wisely. It's critically important in understanding the power and role of anger in the work of love and justice. Anger provides energy. It provides energy to act, action for social change. In fact, when you look into it, most moral activity, most pushes for justice have come from the rising power of human anger. This anger that might help break through the cultural language barrier. All of us, on either side, on any side, can, feel, can become desperately upset in the inability to, to persuade the other side to share or at least hear our most deeply cathected values. Anger, properly channeled, can give energy to act for change, to find more constructive ways to engage one another. So, how can we be angry without sinning? Ephesians sums it up succinctly. To quote the verse, So then, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. Further on in the uh, chapter, we are told to be imitators of God, and to live in love. The other reference was Isaiah, and it's Isaiah 58. And to just quote, If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom shall be like noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. 
You shall raise up the foundation of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. So I think this, we have been called, we have been summoned to be repairers or healers. We do not have the luxury of clumping together and hating those who we think hate us or are different from us, nor do we have the luxury of allowing politics to trump the demands of justice and human dignity. We are called to be repairers of the breach, to be healers, even when the chasm threatens to swallow us. Karen Armstrong, a contemporary religious thinker, writer, former nun, said the single test of theology or a spiritual practice is whether it offers a practical application of compassion. She went on to say, your theology fails if your image of the holy of the mystery makes you bigoted, self-righteous, unkind, or dismissive of others. And amen for that. The question is not how we speak of God, but how we transcend ourselves. Asking ourselves, are we serving the greater good? Are we given compassion, offering kindness, withholding judgment? In most religious traditions, we are charged to love our enemies, to bless with hope those who curse us. And this brings me to the um, recall of the, the observation regarding guns and imagination. Despair, when not the response to absolute physical and moral defeat, is like war a failure of imagination, a failure of imagination. So the observation was um, from a teacher who was, talk who was involved with a series of student-written plays. There were two different classes, and there were about six plays in each of the classes. Props were given out, and amongst the props given to one of the classes was a toy gun. The other class did not receive a gun amongst their props. In the class with the gun, every play, all six, ended with someone getting shot. In the other class, without the gun, the endings were more varied, interesting, creative, imaginative. It would seem that guns squelch or kill imagination. Now, I had my own insight in this. I, I know, I've noticed with um, profanity, which would probably be a, a way of violent words, um, that in movies, if, I can say this from a public, if the F word is used within the first few seconds, then it's like it pushes all other vo vocabulary out. You know, who knew? that the word could be used as a noun, a pronoun, a verb, an adjective, an adverb, a conjunction, a preposition, an uh, interjection, a dangling participle. Who knew? 
So I think we can extrapolate that the gun is representative of violence. Violence in words, actions, thought. Violence, a failure of imagination. It's unfortunately reinforced by the media in its promulgating of polarizing shouting matches, snide commentary, snarky rejoiners, where the sarcasm gathers and the slime deepens. It seems almost impossible not to become angry, especially uh, and, and to resort to the tactics we see from the other side, when so-called morals, and I'll put that in quotations, and values are used as battering rams, when ideals and morals are co-opted, turned obscenely on their heads, and used to divide and conquer, so-called wedge issues. Who wouldn't become incensed and metaphorically want to get the gun that is resort to violence in words, actions, in order to defend or to retaliate? Yet, as Ephesians said, be angry but do not sin. So how does one transcend this provocation? I think it calls for imagination and clarity of vision. One writer talked about spiritual spaciousness, saying this is an inside job, really, and it's enough room to acknowledge the other. It involves practicing seeing with the eyes of the soul and also remembering that learning to see this way is a discipline that requires practice. Like right now, if you take in a deep breath, and another, and imagine with each breath that your inner boundaries are expanding. Earlier, I spoke about the, the band ride scene, and it was an artist's rendition of the beloved community. And it had men and women and children and animals and doves and stars, it was really uh, t trees, it was very nice. And the beloved community was Dr. King's vision of people coming together to overcome poverty, racism, and militarism, it requiring a nonviolent frame of mind. And he saw nonviolence as a way of life, particularly confronting the forces of injustice. It's an implicit recognition that in a crowded, complex world, we need to find productive common ground where we strive to make, cultivate, mend relationships. Understanding that when we do not do this, civility shrinks and we get smaller. He outlined several steps in the creation of the beloved community one was information gathering, another was education about uh, the real problems uh, and the, real, the, the unjust situations that were uh, out there. He talked about the need for personal commitment, negotiating, and direct action. And I do think that interfaith is illustrative of this. Uh, such as things with the, uh, the work with property standards, looking for um, uh, trying to create jobs. Um, 
So the, these are ways, or this is a, a group that is taking small steps and leaning forward. The moral values of Unitarian Universalism and other liberal religious traditions call us to work toward the beloved community, understanding we are all in this together, real people struggling with real issues, all of us deserving equal rights, enough to live on, and the opportunity to become fully who we are. Finally, this brings me to the words of my dying friend. <clears throat> she was fully cognizant she was uh, of her impending death, as was I. And you know, in those situations, you listen with new ears. She said, I've lived a full life, and I'm ready to go. My children will be okay. My husband will be okay. She went on talking about it, and she said, I didn't go to church much, but I'm not worried. I see things differently now. I know there's more, and life is larger than me. <clears throat> and then she went on to say that she'd found a new brand of milk that I might really enjoy. I mean, it was kind of a varied conversation. <laughs> so that's the deal. I think it's about knowing, it's about living real life here and now and making the best of it, knowing that there's more, and it's larger than me. The beloved community <clears throat> is accomplished when we transcend ourselves, when we engage in experiences that contribute to something larger than ourselves. Then, Karen Armstrong says, the divine is present, whether or not we call it divine, and the beloved community comes to be. And so it is. And Godspeed, <clears throat> Godspeed Jean. <clears throat>